The following sermon was preached on August 8, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Pastor Joe Harrell, Mission to the World Missionary to Columbia, preached this sermon entitled Faith, Hope, Love on 1 Thessalonians 1, 1-10. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, it is summertime. And, as usually happens every summer, there are weddings. If I were to ask the married couples here tonight, how many of you are either celebrating or will celebrate an anniversary during the summer months? Uh, hopefully, uh, men, you remember, if that's the case, uh, the date. You know, it's interesting, but often as we consider preparing to officiate a, a wedding ceremony, which really is a worship service, very often someone will say, why don't you read 1 Corinthians 13? There we see those three words that I've used to uh, title the message uh, this evening, faith, hope, and love. These three, Paul says, but the greatest of these is love. Now, interestingly enough, and in my confusion between 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the order should be in 1 Thessalonians, our text, faith, love, and hope. I will be reading that text just in a moment, but I want you to think about those words. As we introduce the reading of God's word, the text this evening will be 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 10. I want you to think for a moment how in often trivial ways we use those great biblical terms. Faith. Keep the faith. But faith in whom? Faith in what? Obviously, love. Often you think of the wedding ceremony and you think of the emphasis on love, but is love really never having to say, I'm sorry? Uh, we think of all the love uh, songs that are often used and cited. We have no idea often what love really means. And then we think of hope. I hope so. But what in the text that we'll be reading tonight, what is faith? What is hope? And what is love? And so our text tonight is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And I would ask you again to stand. We will break our tradition somewhat, but to stand as we... Reverence the word of the Lord is reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the word of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love 
and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. You may be seated. First Thessalonians, many believe, was the first epistle or letter written by the Apostle Paul. It was written around the year 51 AD. Acts chapter 17, as we said, tells the ministry results, as Luke often gives us in the book of Acts, of what took place in Thessalonica. Three weeks, three Sabbath days, <coughs> Paul reasoned in the synagogue, as was his custom, with the Jews. The results, some Jews joined Paul and Silas and Timothy, but it says a multitude of Greeks and many of the leading women. A church was born. A church characterized by and large by those who were not Jewish but were Greeks. And yet it was a church that was born in affliction and persecution. The account briefly tells us how a riot was called by jealous Jews, often opposing Paul at every place. Later they would follow him to Berea. And yet, in the midst of this, in the midst of violence and persecution, we see that a church was born. And that church persevered, as we will see, Lord willing, next week. It was a very fruitful visitation of a church planning team. And yet, we see the resistance and the affliction from the beginning. As we study this context, and we think particularly of the world in which the gospel came there in Thessalonica, we are often reminded of our context today in 2021, a time in which often the gospel is opposed. Uh, the gospel is opposed and believers uh, face affliction and persecution. And in the context of this, our text gives us an encouraging exhortation. An exhortation to work in faith 
labor in love and hope with patience and endurance. This text tonight, I pray, will encourage us right here, a few believers assembled as Zach prayed earlier, as we face a new week, that we would be exhorted in this way to work in faith, to labor in love and hope with patience and endurance. Paul begins this, his first epistle, as he does with many others, offering prayer with thanksgiving. Verses two through five actually make up one sentence, and it's all a prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving and not of congratulations. If we read this prayer carefully, we are going to discover that Paul was not saying to them, boy, you're doing great. What he is rather saying to them and reminding them and exhorting to them is that from the beginning, their faith, their love, their hope is grounded in God himself. The one who supplies the power is the one who gets all of the glory. So this is a prayer of thanksgiving and not a statement of congratulations to the Thessalonians. First of all, we see in verse 4 that they were chosen. We're reminded in Ephesians 1 that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We also see from this text that they are called to exercise faith. He speaks of their faith, but we're reminded in Ephesians 2, verse 8, faith is a gift from God. They are called actually to labor in love, but we're reminded in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. And remembering this, we recognize that this is a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Paul recognizes that as they arrived in this city of Thessalonica, as he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews, showing them that Jesus is the Messiah, and later as he proclaimed to the Greeks the truths of the gospel, it was God's work. God had chosen them from the foundation of the earth. It was God's work. He had given them the gift of faith, and it was God's work who put his love in them. So Paul remembers in verses 5 and 6, Thessalonica. It's interesting to read what he remembers. He remembers that the word of God came to them in power and the Holy Spirit. We've seen in previous messages from the book of Acts that we are called to be witnesses, to take the gospel to others, but we recognize that as we go in his name, that the power is his. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he had promised, and you will be my witnesses, both in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul is now entering into the uttermost part of the earth. He is entering into Macedonia. He is proclaiming the gospel in a pagan city. 
And yet, we see the fruit that is being caused there. So we see that you will be my witnesses. And we will be witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit. This will be the Spirit's work. Uh, this is illustrated in this text in an incredible way by the team that came to them. That team had come, as he remembers, in Acts chapter 2, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And a little bit of the background here is very helpful. Uh, you'll remember that Paul and Silas had been beaten with rods. They had been locked up in prison for preaching the gospel. Uh, in Philippi, they had been publicly disgraced. And Paul remembers this. If you'll look ahead in 1 Thessalonians 2, he reminds them, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech. Remember this morning, the exhortation from 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, we did not come with words of, of worldly wisdom, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. And he goes on to speak of how when he was with them, he worked with his own hands to provide for the needs for he and his team. Not only could we say that Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that their faith, their love, their hope was the work of God in them, but they are not taking credit as a church planning team. For it was in weakness that they came to Thessalonica, having been shamed in Philippi. And it was not in order to please men, but they proclaimed the word of God. It was the power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit that changed lives. It was the Lord. And for this reason, Paul is praying. As I studied this passage in preparation for this, I was convicted. Convicted of the fact that so often in our ministry, as we seek to plant new churches, and train you leaders, we view Paul's letters in his prayers 
And something like this, Paul begins by praying for them, letting them know that he prays for them. And I was viewing this, I confess to you, sometimes as Paul kind of getting that over, uh, out of the way that he's praying for them, and now he's really going to tell them what he needs to tell them. But I've come to see that that is so wrong. Paul's hope of success in church planting and training leaders for the churches was in Christ alone. His strategy wasn't a, a, a prayer of preparation for the ministry, but it was the ministry himself. He prayed night and day for them, and here he is giving them thanks. And I think of the emphasis of this church and what Becky and I have already learned from many of you, the emphasis on prayer. If Antioch Presbyterian Church is to be blessed, to be filled, and to grow, to reach into the communities around us and beyond, as the church was used in Thessalonica, our hope is in the Lord as we confess each Lord's Day. And so we must be a praying church. Well, the second thing we see here from our text is the fruit or results of true faith, love, and hope. In verses 6 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read these words. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This word imitating or imitators is our word for mimes. You've seen mimes. Mimes are basically one who mimics what they see. They repeat that. They watch, they observe, and they do and say and act mimicking the others. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And by the way, don't be thrown by Silvanus. Uh, Silvanus is a, a longer form of the Jewish name Silas, maybe a Greek uh, form of that name. But it's the, it's the same Silas that we have come to know in the book of Acts. Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrive. And the way that they conduct themselves in humility and in service to the church there call the believers to mimic or imitate them. Paul had said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. As I think of this passage, I think of our calling, many of us, as parents, as grandparents, as uncles and aunts. People are looking to us to mimic, to follow us. As a high school athlete, I have in the, my mind a picture of something, I believe, Lucas, that's on the back of some of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes literature, at least it was in that day. And it has a high school football team after practice, full uniform. They're all huddled around listening to the coach. They've all taken the knee. But standing in the foreground of that picture is a boy about your ages. Those of you I'm looking out, younger guys, maybe 10, 12 years old. And the little guy has a uniform on. And guess what? The uniform 
is the same uniform the players have on. And he's standing there and he's looking at them. They were either a good example to follow or a bad example to follow, but they were looking as often people look to athletes as those that they should imitate their behavior. This is the concept here. It's further illustrated for us in terms of the word example, which comes in the next verse. It says actually that the Thessalonians became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. That's the area where Thessalonica is. As well as in Achaia, that's the area where Corinth was. So they became an example. Now the word here is the word for pattern. Um, those of you who like to sew, you follow a pattern. This is the word that is being used here. Another uh, idea of this word is a, a stamp. It's a typos or it's a stamp that actually makes an imprint in something that looks a certain way. That's an example to follow. Going back to the illustration of the athletes in the end zone, we may not be aware of it, but someone is looking to us as an example. And they will follow that example the way we speak, our priorities. We will either be a good example or a bad example. Someone has said, and a great reminder to us, more is actually caught than is taught by words. One of the things that I believe children have an uncanny ability to do, and young people, is to see really what is important to us. What makes us mad? What really gets our dander up? And if that is someone who cuts us off in traffic or uh, someone who interrupts our time, it, it is not something that has to do with a righteous, godly anger. And what are we passing on to them? I think it is humorous when I meet someone, and sometimes this happens in the PCA, where you meet someone who's been discipled by another person. And maybe you've noticed what I've noticed, that often when someone has been discipled by another person, they actually talk like that person. Uh, they walk like that person. It's quite humorous sometimes. If, if I know maybe a senior pastor who has disciples some young men, and I hear them pray, I hear them preach, I hear them talk, this is the concept, an example, to imitate us as we imitate Christ. This must be our goal, for more is truly caught than taught. But the amazing thing is, the example of the Thessalonians went beyond their area of Macedonia or Achaia, the bordering area. But in verse 8, it tells us that it went even beyond in every place. When Paul and Silas and Timothy spoke to the other churches, they didn't need to tell them about the Thessalonians' faith. The word had already sounded forth like a trumpet blast. They knew 
of their faith, of their love, and the hope that they had in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing stories, and I, I can't help but reflect on that tonight, is what God has done and continues to do with a small group of churches in the country of Colombia, South America. There are other churches in Bolivia, in Ecuador, in Costa Rica, in Mexico, in Peru, who look to the church in Colombia and Venezuela as their mother church, as their Thessalonica. The gospel has sounded forth from those small churches and has impacted the world. One of our goals and our prayers, and we'd ask you to pray for this, is that the churches would be able to send their own missionaries and that they would pray for them and they would support them that the same way we have been supported by this church, this would happen with the Latin American church as well. Well, as we come to verses 9 and 10 of our text, we see what actually has happened. I believe to this point, through Paul's prayer, we have seen the evidence of faith, hope, and love. Uh, we have seen the results of that in verses 6 through 8, but now we come to zero in. What actually took place? And so let's read verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The idea of turning from idols. Repentance. Turning is repentance. It's, it's turning 180 degrees of seeing our idolatry for what it is, our sin, and doing an about face. But what exactly is an idol? I remember one speaking in Mississippi to a camp actually with children and we were talking about the idols of many of our Mexican friends. Some of, to some of them, their chief idol is the Virgin of Guadalupe, the patron of Virgin of Mexico. They believe that she some ways has powers to help them and they trust her. I, I actually went back before the Spanish people came and I told the boys and girls about the idols of, of worshiping the sun or worshiping the moon and how they actually sacrificed people to their gods. And they had their trust in them that their crops would grow and they would be able to bear children because of these natural factors that God had made. And after talking about that, and boys and girls, I want you to listen carefully. I told the boys and girls that I was going to show them the most dangerous idol in the world. Well, we had talked about the, the gods of the Aztec people. We had talked about the Virgin of Guadalupe. <clears throat> How do you think I uh, showed them that night the most dangerous idol in the world? Well, one by one, 
They were led into a dark closet. They could not see. But suddenly, when there was enough light for them to see, they realized that they were looking at a mirror. They were actually looking at their own face. And what we learned was our own hearts are like idol factories. We're making idols all the time. Anything or anybody that we put above God becomes an idol. And the most dangerous one of all is putting myself before God. But in Lystra, in Paul's first missionary journey, and later in Athens, as he walked through this city that was full of idols, he preached that they must first turn from their idols anything or anyone that they would put above Christ in order that they might turn to a living and true God. This was a hard message for them, and it's a hard message for us today, that in order to have faith in the living and true God, the only God, we must turn from ourselves. We must trust him alone. This is faith. Faith is resting, as Zach explained this morning. Faith is resting on Christ and hoping in him for our salvation. The second part of this, of course, is to serve a living and true God. This text reminds us that we hope for one we have faith in one who has defeated death. He is alive, and so for that reason, we trust that he will come again for us. But also it has to do with how we face this week. As we face this week, we must remember that Christ not only is our hope of glory, that we hope for him for all eternity, but because of his resurrection power, we have hope for today. One of the things that I discovered in my visit to Colombia is that many people are losing hope. Many profession Christians, those who have been involved in the churches, seeing people around them dying, their own loved ones, their own family members. Seeing that they have lost their jobs. Many of them are simply waiting, hoping perhaps for a better day and asking the question, is there really hope for change? As our country is reeling under civil protests, national strikes, violence, is there really hope for us and for our children, for our church? And the answer that comes to our text is a resounding yes. King Jesus does reign and rule. There is hope. There is power in his resurrection for today. But it doesn't end there. The text finishes here by saying that we hope 
in him who delivers us from the wrath to come. This little letter, Paul's first, each chapter division in our Bibles ends with a reference to Christ's second coming. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 1, or if you skip ahead to chapter 2, verses ni verse 19, or 3, verse 13, or 4, verse, uh, verses 16 and 17, or at the end of the letter in 523, the last part, each chapter ends speaking about Christ's second coming. Why is that? Because the people who are suffering in adversity and persecution need hope. They need to know that there is a purpose. There is a telos. There is a goal. This will end when Christ comes to redeem fully, to sanctify, receive his church with the work being accomplished as well as to deliver us, as it says here, from the wrath to come. You know, many of our neighbors don't believe the wrath is going to come. Uh, they believe that actually when you die, you're kind of a puff and you're gone. Uh, they do not believe in life after death, many of them, but often there's that question, what if? The Bible's very clear to us, there's no what if. It's appointed unto man, what? Once to die, and after that, the judgment. And there's only one hope, and that hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. Someone has said that a person can be too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Have you ever heard that expression? That this person has their mind so much on heaven that they really can't live for today. We don't need to worry about that. For us to have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, is what actually equips us to serve him today, to be an example to others that they can imitate. And so this passage in 1 Thessalonians is an exhortation. It's an exhortation to a work of faith. A faith that simply is not something inside of us, but it results in us doing work that pleases the Lord. It is also a labor of love. I want to encourage you all tonight that when the Bible speaks about a labor of love, this word is the word toil, laborious. It is hard, but it's motivated by love, his love in us, so that those daily <clears throat> tasks that we do uh, to get up and to go to work, to be faithful in our studies where God has placed us in the home, he has called us and equipped us to labor motivated by love. But then also it says that we have hope. We have hope in the present adversity. Our text combines, as often the scriptures do, adversity with 
joy. Those seem to be contradictory, don't they? How can we go into this new week knowing what we know, knowing what is going on in the world, in our world, and in our own lives, and facing adversity and tribulation, but still having joy? We have that joy because it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We have that joy because, as the psalmist says, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has received above all his brethren the oil of gladness, the joy which comes through the Holy Spirit. And so in the midst of those daily tasks, that laborious work of love, of caring for those around us, of serving Christ in different ways, he calls us to rejoice, to be filled with joy, and to hope. To not only hope in his second coming, which we do hope for and long for, but also to know that that hope is what gives us hope for today. Now I have a quiz question for you as we close. As you have heard that faith is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death, does that not encourage you? Are you not encouraged that the love with which we are motivated to serve is his love in us? It's his agape love, selfless love. And the hope that we have, the endurance that that brings, the waiting upon the Lord as we heard this morning, doesn't that encourage us knowing that he has been faithful to all of his promises and certainly he will be faithful to this one. Here is the quiz question. Usually when we think of the future and we think of what Christ will do, for example, when we die, we think of two texts in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But have you ever noticed how these great passages on final things end? Well, that's the way that we will end tonight. 1 Thessalonians 4, after telling us about the hope that we have in Christ, he says, therefore, Comfort one another with these words. There is comfort in these words. First Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection. And after he speaks of the victory that we have, the hope that we have because of Christ's victory over death. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, and that is the word labor, your labor, your work is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.